Road to Possible presents Road to Equality. Luciano Yonya. I work in theater for social change. Um, born and raised in Ottawa, uh, back in the fifties, early fifties. Um, predominantly in what is now in Ottawa is the Corso Italia, uh, the little Italy, but at the time we called it, uh, the village, uh, because there were a lot of different nationalities in there. Um, and typically growing up, it, um, you sort of stuck to your own community. So the Italians would stick with the Italians and the French Canadians with French Canadians and the Jamaicans with the Jamaicans and so on. Um, but going to school, I would have to walk through a small French Canadian part of town to get to my school. And it was like walking through a gauntlet. Uh, what we would consider today abuse potential violence or assault was a daily thing. Uh, I'd have rocks thrown at me, whatever, being an Italian and, you know, um, the whole WAP, go home without papers, WOP WAP. So that was sort of the, the initial reality of what my life was like earlier on. When I uh, started working uh, part-time jobs, uh, my father got me jobs working with him in the summertime. I was 13 years old, working construction, uh, making precast concrete slabs and stuff like that, and then delivering them. A lot of them would be into areas like uh, Rockcliffe Park, which is where a lot of the embassies and the more elite of Ottawans um, would reside. Very upper class, very rich. They have their own uh, RCMP division looking after the place because there's a lot of diplomats. And so when we would have to go out there delivering slabs for fences, or patio stones, whatever, we would constantly trail by the police and, uh, the staff would come out and, uh, sort of make disparaging remarks to us, which was ironic because they were new Canadians as well. So I had an early sense of being different of understanding what a class difference was in Canada, despite the fact that we're supposed to be very egalitarian society. We were, we were based on a, on a colonialism, right? The English and the working class and the aristocracy. And that was made very evident, particularly if you're a new Canadian, if English isn't your primary first language. The irony is also that the French Canadians that everyone despised and uh, had issues with, they were in worse positions than, than anyone else. Ironically, we were, as, um, as Europeans, not as local French Canadians, we had to step up on them. We, I could see that there was a difference treatment, particularly in schools and classrooms and so on. If someone had a French Canadian background or name, the teachers would regard them and treat them quite differently. So that was um, a sense of what class was like growing up and what my reality was like. And the way to get out of that was education, try to go to school, try to, try to get a degree and so on. I didn't succeed at that at first. I, uh, 
I tried uh, different colleges, whatever. I started, uh, I got into Carleton University on what they had was a biology geology combination program. Uh, couldn't get my maths. Uh, and circumstances at the time uh, weren't going well for me. And I decided, let's get out of Ottawa, let's get out of Canada. I plan to emigrate. So I worked for a while as a bartender, trying to uh, save enough money so that I could emigrate to Australia, which was the other side of the world. I wanted to get as far away from Ottawa as I could. Working in a bar, particularly uh, in, a, in a, a bar that uh, served um, civil servants, taught me another lesson in terms of uh, class structure and who is more important as a human being. And again, emphasized working class against managerial, that middle class, and then of course, the politicians, the law, uh, the policy makers, the aristocracy, and so on. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the author who um, uh, he used to be the director of, of Forbes magazine. Um, he had this wonderful uh, definition that there were really only two classes in North America, based on the Roman model. There's the pedestrian class and the carriage class. You either ride or you pull the carriage. Um, so I got a, I got a, a good sense of that. Um, how I got involved in theater was purely accidental. I, um, <clears throat> through some personal stuff, I, I wound up not going to uh, Australia. I wound up, I ran into an old high school buddy who was actually going to Queen's University. Um, and he was taking drama. And uh, he said, why don't you move to Kingston? We'll share a place, whatever. Uh, so I got a job in Kingston. I lived there, but I wound up socializing with a lot of his friends who were in drama and I got involved in theater. And while I was there, I was working for some insurance company doing filing work or whatever. And, um, I was taking night courses and part-time courses in, in drama. Got involved with, um, um, one of the courses that I was taking and got involved with was when Keith Johnston, who was, uh, when he first came to Canada, uh, he was the master of improvisation and improv and developed a whole school of methodology around improvisation. And so a couple of, um, his students and, and I, his sort of disciples, his early disciples before he moved up to Calgary and formed Loose Moose Theater and, and, uh, became a little more famous in North America. Um, we started doing, improvisational work on the streets. Kingston is a town that was at that time, it's the seventies. The main economy of, of Kingston at the time was the penitentiaries, the Alcan plant, aluminum plant, and support workers for the institutions, for the penitentiaries, for the educational institutions. There was Queens University, St. Lawrence College, Royal Military College, and so on. Another working class, city with a working class structure. It was a military town originally. So you had the officers and, and the, uh, the common soldiers and the workers. So again, where you looked at in Kingston, where the workers used to live, the support workers and where the professors and the managers of the prison and the manager of the plant, very different community. And one of the things we tried to do as an improv group on the street, we had this idea to do a show about prisoners' rights. 
I don't know where they came from. There were, there were three of us. Um, and, uh, we started doing this little improv thing on street corners, busking just to see if we can make some money. And it was around prisoners rights. And, uh, the reaction was a lot of the people were mostly women who were wives of the support workers, a lot of wives of the prison guards threw stones at us, spat at us, uh, told us that we were supporting criminals, that, that they, we didn't understand what their husbands were going through as guards, correctional guards. And it's true. We didn't, we sort of had a, a romantic idea of, of what life was like. I'm, you know, 22, 23 years old. Haven't had that experience. I've had friends who've been through the prison system, but haven't been there through personally. So that was another teaching for me in terms of if you wanted to bring something to light, that it wasn't going to be easy, that there was going to be a tremendous amount of resistance. And also to listen because, um, not understanding then at that time, but putting this all in perspective years later, the work that I was doing later was to understand the, the position that the workers, that they were in a similar position, whether you're a correctional service officer, whether you're uh, um, a servant of a, a public servant, whatever, you're also stuck in a system and the system is rigged to work a certain way. It's to maintain the status quo. And so that was an early teaching that I hadn't quite grasped at that time, but I held on to that experience later on and I was able to reflect back on it of why these, these women and, and, and people who saw what we were doing were so angry. Um, it inspired us because we figured, well, we're hitting the right buttons, but, um, the reaction was a lot more extreme than we expected. And we had to understand why it was that extreme what what triggered those kinds of emotions so that was sort of my my foray my beginning to understand uh the separations within society certainly starting from class as a as a, a child of new canadians of immigrants having to understand english was not my first language it wasn't my second language it wasn't my third language so having to learn to communicate within that society at that time uh, learning where my place was, learning that I didn't want to be at that level in that place, learning that I had to fight to do certain things to get out of that position, learning that there were, I was even at that low class structure that I was, there were people even below me. So, uh, um, earlier on, I, I started to understand, I started to see, maybe not understand what the differences were. And it wasn't until much later, certainly into my thirties that I began to realize that I could use theater, which by the time I was in my thirties, I'd been doing traditional mainstream theater for about 10 years. Um, not being very satisfied with it, uh, discovering that there was another form of theater out there that was connecting with people, connecting with issues that was being used to analyze what was happening in society to challenge what was happening in society to work with communities um that i was able to reflect back on my youth and the experiences that i had as teachings that i could then reapply to what i was doing uh or wanted to do 
So I, um, being dissatisfied with working in mainstream theater, I was working in Edmonton, uh, late seventies into the early eighties. Um, for a couple of years, I was working out of the Citadel theater, which is a main regional theater, uh, in Western Canada. Uh, this was at the time when they didn't have an artistic director. <clears throat> so they would have guest artistic directors coming in and I would work with them and, um, they had me work and had me on, on contract as an assistant director, but I could see the road that they were paving for me to potentially take over the theater. But they wanted me to operate in a specific way, the producers. And, uh, I didn't quite see myself going down that road. I was starting to feel dissatisfied with what the work was doing. They would have some incredible artists. You've had classics from the canon of Western theater being produced there, whether it's Shakespeare or Shaw or, you know, and, and more current work of, you know, August Wilson and, and so on. And, and incredible artists at the time, theater artists, or they would bring in, you know, uh, more famous stars from screen and so on to highlight some of the shows because this, the Citadel Theater had money. It was the prime regional theater of Western Canada. You would have the Ma Manitoba Theater Center, you would have the Citadel Theater, and that's it in Western Canada. Essentially, the big, big theaters so was Theater Calgary, and you know, Alberta Theater Projects, and, you know, the Belfry and Victoria and, and so on. But in terms of operating on multi-million dollar budgets. So um, I was dissatisfied despite the fact that they have all these wonderful artists and terrific work coming out of a show after seeing whatever it was. Uh, you know, Arthur Miller's um, Death of a Salesman, for example. You'd be impressed by, by the performance, but you'd still be left a little cold. At least I was. Uh, I would see multi-million dollar productions. Uh, I was loosely involved with the uh, stage adaptation of Mordecai Richler's um, Duddy Kravitz, fantastic Canadian novel. And that's where it should lie. Uh, made a pretty good film, you know. Uh, Richard Dreyfus, I think, played Duddy. Um, but we brought in Lonnie Price and, and a vast array of great uh, authors and uh, actors and and uh, they got uh, Steber, uh, uh, the guys who used to write for Elvis Presley, to write the music, musical score, because it was going to be a big musical. Horrible experience. Um, uh, $2 million production at that time, 1982-1983. And that was a turning point for me to say that I, I don't want to be doing this anymore, that um, theater could be for something else. So while living in Edmonton, and I was able to... Um, I, Edmonton has space because I also worked in, in Winnipeg and in uh, Calgary and, and in Victoria. Um, one of the, one of the um, things that struck me most that I hadn't had the experience um, growing up in Eastern Canada was the, uh, the indigenous population. Um, I was, when I first went out to, uh, to Edmonton, I worked at what was then Theatre 3, then became Phoenix Theatre. And, and Theatre 3 had this wonderful little space, which was right by the, the tracks. Uh, 95th Street, <clears throat> and behind was a salvage yard. And unfortunately, and we're, we're talking again late 70s, um, many of the urban indigenous people would find shelter in the salvage yard. 
And um, there were days when, um, particularly in the winter time, when you know there'd be sirens and, and interrupt our work, and we'd go and look at the back where the shop entrance was, and um, you would have the fire department coming in with hoses because it was so cold that people would freeze to the ground. And when they died, they couldn't remove them. They would ask the fire department to come in to basically wash them down to de-ice them so they could pick up the bodies and remove them. And, you know, for someone who uh, lived a fairly urban lifestyle, uh, Ottawa had its own subculture. There was a certain amount of violence that I'd seen, but there was never so much disregard for humans as I'd seen there. The treatment of the indigenous people, uh, the poverty, the consistent poverty, the willful disregard by policymakers and lawmakers to not address the issue of the separation of um, white European ordinary, what we call ordinary citizens of, of Edmonton, of Regina, of, of Winnipeg, because I lived in Winnipeg for a year, and uh, the, the systemic racism there was overwhelming. Um, that brought home to me something beyond classism. I'd, I'd never faced a racism before. I felt cultural differences in terms of uh, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant and, and you know, the, the poor Europeans coming in. Um, but this was my first experience of, of real evident racism. Um, inviolable, um, irreputable, um, and, and I didn't know how to deal with it at the time. Um, um, I was consumed, of course, early career, you're in your early twenties and you want, you want to get that going, um, and not having time or having the tools, how to deal with it. But that left an overwhelming impression for me. Um, so that when, um, I wanted to change a career or at least start using theater in a different way for myself. Uh, that was certainly one of the um, images, one of the influences for me. The early years of, of my class awareness, that first introduction to a general racism, it wasn't until a few years later, actually, uh, I had an experience uh, that challenged my own racism. Uh, but this was in Italy, ironically, it was um, uh, the year after my father passed away. Uh, my sister and I took my, my mother to Italy so that she could be with her family because we were the only one of our family here in, in Canada. And uh, for, for people who may not know, uh, Italy does not have a great record uh, in dealing with, uh, with races. Um, their colonialist history in uh, Africa uh, is, is evident today within society. And um, at the time, um, this was 1983, again, I hadn't realized what a, what a, a, a turning year that was for me. Um, I was on this bus on my own 
in, in Italy. And uh, the part of Italy that I'm from is, uh, long story uh, short, it's, it's a very different language, has its own language, its own root, uh, uh, root of language. And I'm on this city bus that's taking me out of this main city, Udina, to the little village where I'm staying with my mother and sister. And I'm one of two people on the bus, and the bus stops, and this woman gets on. And she's obviously um, East African. And she gets on, and she starts talking to the bus driver. And I realize she's talking in, in Furlano, in Friulano, which is a very different language from, from Italian. And, and I'm about halfway, two-thirds of the way down the bus, and I'm listening to this conversation. And I'm starting to feel myself getting a little jealous, getting a little angry as to why this young black woman is speaking my language that the bus driver. And that's when it, it hit me that I have absolutely no right to think that way, to feel that way, that that woman was probably born there. She had more rights than I did. I was born in Canada. I'm, I'm the newcomer. I'm the, I'm the trespasser there, you know? So that was another big, big teaching for me. I will always, always remember that. And that personal experience triggered into understanding, uh, uh, the class differences, the, how I treated French Canadians, the French Canadians treatment of me, uh, my experiences with the indigenous people in, in Edmonton and the community there all started to interweave. And I wanted to see how I could use my theater experience, my theater work to try to make things different. So it was around, um, 1982-1983 I was finishing up my term at, at Citadel Theatre and at the time in Canada there was what was called a, a popular theatre movement, popular as in of the people. And there was an alliance across Canada of, of, of theatre groups and individuals who were doing this kind of theatre. At the time it was called popular theatre, then it became uh, theatre and education, today it's called applied theatre. But it's essentially you're using theatre to work with particular communities that are disenfranchised or having struggles within society um, to tell their stories, to try to change policy, to find some sort of equanimity within society. And every second year, this alliance of Canadian popular theatres and theatre workers would have a little conference, a little festival in different parts of Canada. That year, 83, it was in Edmonton. And uh, I'd heard of it circuitously. I uh, can't remember how and, and where, but I was able to attend some of the events and, and workshops that some of these people were doing. And that's when things tweaked for me, where I began to understand how art could be used differently. Theater could be a tool that could change things. That working within a community, it would change not only within the community, that reaffirmation of, of they have purpose, they have uh, a right to be there, to exist, but that they can take that message out to the rest of society and try to get society to open up as well to them, to understand what was happening, to challenge the status quo. I moved back to, to Ontario in, in 85, uh, got connected with some friends who were um, doing some community work and uh, suggested that we could start using theater to do um, 
some work with communities, uh, art involvement, and so on. And it started to happen. Um, uh, a year later, I took a workshop with someone who had been working with Augusto Boal. Boal was uh, a Latin American out of Brazil and worked in Argentina as well, uh, developing a methodology of theater called Theater of the Oppressed, which is um, a whole arsenal of different theater techniques, uh, image theater, newspaper theater, uh, invisible theater, and uh, the more famous uh, of the methodologies of the disciplines is forum theater. Uh, forum theater is a form of interactive theater, um, very egalitarian, very um, democratic, where the audience gets to replace some of the characters on stage. You, you pose um, a problem, a scene, you create a scene with a problem that a community is facing. So if you're dealing with the homeless, you're dealing with problems with someone living on the street and they can't get out of that situation. You present this play, then you repeat the scenario and the audience then gets a chance to replace some of the characters to try to find answers, options, um, possible solutions to these kinds of things. So it's role-playing options, problem-solving. Very, uh, uh, very effective. The United Nations has uh, acknowledged that uh, foreign theater is a great tool to fight uh, literacy or Ill illiteracy. Um, and, and homelessness around the world. So UNESCO is 100% is behind this methodology. It came out of, uh, of uh, Paulo Freire's um, Pedagogy of the Press, uh, and Freire is, is, is an icon of modern education. And this tweaked me on to, this could be a great tool to work with communities. This is a fantastic tool, how we can instigate, uh, initiate social change. And that's one, I began focusing more and more on my work since then, from 1986, 1987, working with diverse communities. Um, uh, one of the first projects I did actually was with actors, since it was a lot of theater practitioners who took this, uh, like this workshop. We looked into ourselves and said, what are the problems that we're facing? And that was um, one of the first productions that I was involved with was looking at within Toronto what young actresses were having to deal with, what female actresses were having to deal with, which was the famous casting couch. If you want to get a role, you may have to put out at the time. There were a lot of young men who were fa facing the same thing at the time as well. Um, um, but uh, ironically, that, that very little has changed since then. It wasn't until, and I'm... I'm uh, I'm ashamed to say that it took the whole Me Too movement um, for, for this issue to finally explode, to become public. Uh, we tried to address it uh, back in 86, 87, here in Toronto anyways. Um, but, uh, uh, but it's interesting that it took people within the, the arts community, within the film industry and theater community to, to, uh, to make it known that um, Sexual assault, sexual manipulation within the workplace is unacceptable. Um, so that's that's one of the things I'm I'm I'm, um, I'm a little bit proud of that we were sort of on the cusp of that going in, and, and a lot of the earlier work we did was with landlord tenant issues and um, uh, dealing with uh, homeless youth and homeless adults, and the difference is certainly in Toronto between adults who've been living on the street and street youth. Uh, certainly for homeless adults, uh, 
that opened the door to psychiatric issues and then started to work with psychiatric survivors and, and um, workman's theater that operated out of the Queen Street West Mental Health uh, Institute and, and working with them and issues that psychiatric survivors faced every day as opposed to street youth where a lot of the issues that, that forced youth out on the streets that uh, pushed them out of their families was uh, issues of gender identity and and sexuality um, which later developed into uh, uh, mental health issues having to live on the street when you're 16 17 years old and to survive it's going to cause a certain amount of mental stress but the initial push of why they wound up on the streets was around a gender identity and and so starting to work with um with youth around and, and the um, LGBTQ plus community around issues like that. So using theater as that tool, as uh, a voice for them to not only express themselves, but to show society the outside their own community what is going on and forcing policymakers, lawmakers to address these kinds of issues. Um, another, another, uh, project that I'm really proud of was um, working with um, newcomer women, um, women immigrants who experienced a lot of sexual harassment, uh, particularly on public transit. And we did a piece that uh, we took around to community centers and, and so on to um, places that had English as a second language where uh, these women were, were learning um, English so that they could operate better in, in, in Toronto uh, society. And at one event, we had some public officials show up, some representatives from um, the TTC and so on. This would have been 93, 94. <clears throat> and one of the scenarios we had was that a woman was being harassed on the bus, didn't know what to do. And so one of these officials got up and said, well, just go to the bus driver because the bus driver will help you out. That's what they're there for. And the response was, well, no, because look at the way they're dressed. They're military. And for a lot of these women, where they came from and into Canada, the military were not a good source, a, a sense of uh, fairness, uh, um, positive influence in their society. The military was a sense of oppression. They've come from countries that that were controlled by the military, where the military killed their family and so on. So um, the TTC was at that time undergoing an, uh, a review of their uniforms, because at the time uh, the TTC had very military uniforms. They had the epaulets and they had the, the peaked hats, very military. They had uh, slacks with the stripes down the sides. They had to wear their jackets with the cravats um, because they came out of a military background and they wanted to continue that. But when they heard that people, citizens of Toronto, were put off by the uniforms, they had a turn of face. And what we see today is very different from the uniforms that they intended. So I'm, I'm kind of proud that we had a little bit of an influence in changing that. They also um, incorporated, at the time you don't see it now, but at all the ticket booths, the subway stations, and above the drivers on the, on the, on the uh, streetcars and buses, they had signs in four different languages posted that if there was any problem, that you could please address the driver. It was in Italian, Portuguese, 
uh, French and I believe Mandarin Chinese. Um, so that came out of a forum theater performance using theater as a tool for social change. So we had a lot of uh, influences, certainly here in Toronto in the early years. Um, we were able to remove doors. Uh, uh, a lot of the younger generation won't, uh, won't uh, uh, connect with the fact that there used to be telephone booths, public payphones. Um, Bell Canada used to have these payphones on street corners and so on. And uh, you'd enter these booths, they used to have these folding doors to push in so you'd have some privacy when you'd make your phone call. And what happened was that if you were visually impaired, you would often have a problem trying to get out. You, you push your way in, but trying to find the lever to get yourself out because the doors pulled inward was often problematic. So people who were visually impaired were often trapped in these phone booths. And again, similar situation. We did this performance around that kind of issue. And within a year, Bell went around and started removing all these doors from the telephone booths. So we see that at, at that kind of on a municipal level, certainly it can have an effect. The goal was of course, to change society as a whole. How else can we go from um, helping street youth in one particular city resolve their issues? How can we deal with street youth, street youth across the country? How could we deal with communities who are having issues around gender identity and, and, and homosexuality around the country, beyond the country. How could we deal with it around the world? Now what I'm doing more and more of today is creating online forum theater uh, work to be able to have audiences around the world participate in, in issues that uh, can reverberate for them as well. You know, um, dealing with gender rights isn't just a Canadian issue. It's, it's happening around the world. Um, it's, it's taking backward steps in certain parts of the world, certainly in the mid East for every step forward, you take two steps backwards. Uh, we're seeing that in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, even in, in, you know, it's women's rights, simple, uh, rep reproductory rights. Um, uh, uh, we see where Ireland just this year has allowed women the right, uh, to, to, to decide whether to have abortions or not. It's, it's their right. Uh, so these kinds of things can connect us that we're seeing that people around the world are, are different communities around the world are, are, are being united in our struggles to find, uh, to deal with the systemic oppressions. And we're finding ways to use our art, adapting the technology to our art, to, to the art that we're doing, to the theater that we're doing to be able to address these kinds of issues. Living in the digital age, it allows us to uh, communicate much easier um, and, and, and broader uh, around the world. So it gives us access to, to see what other people are doing, the success that they're having, uh, the challenges they're facing reflect back to ourselves. And one of the things that um, I'm noticing is that um, so many of the people doing this work today are of the younger generation. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate enough. I'm, I'm, uh, as I keep telling people, this road that I've taken was never of my choosing. Uh, it seems that I've fallen into this path all the time and other people have prepared for me. And, and, um, I feel blessed that, that I've, I've been able to, 
take this route. And, and one of the blessings that I'm, I'm having today is that I have, um, people asking me to, to work with me, to train young people. Uh, I'm working with a couple of young, uh, people right now. Um, uh, they're calling me their mentor. I, 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 I don't want to wear that mantle. I don't think I deserve it. Um, but I do want to share whatever I can, whatever experiences I have had and, and I'm doing with them right now. And I see this incredible energy, this, um, this will, this, this intensity to make a change that's coming from them that I don't think I ever had. You know, I, 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 I was more of a sit back, observe kind of, kind of, kind of guy. And, and if, if I saw things happening, um, I might lean that way and then suddenly someone would push me in that direction and I'd be involved. But what I see now is that, uh, this, this wave of, of a couple of generations coming up behind me who really are pressing. They want to make changes. They see things in a light that uh, I haven't had an, an experience in seeing before. So the, the modern technologies allowed me to, to connect with a variety of, of groups and individuals around the world. Uh, who are doing some outstanding work today, um, and I'm and I'm inspired by by where they're going and how they're doing it, and and the intensity, and the purpose. Um, whether it's working with uh, theatre depressed work, or whether it's working with nonviolent communication, and different problem solving techniques using theatre in that direction, uh, they're clear, they're articulate, they're they're smart, they have a much much better grasp of, of issues than certainly I had when I would uh, enter and, and work with a community. So I see a lot of positives, a lot of potential for the younger generation in, in dealing with, with uh, our problems that we're dealing with today. I think uh, communities are, are fortunate to have a younger generation who want things to change, who, who see that there is potential that um, can identify with the problems um, have a better grasp of the problems, but at the same time, there's, it's always that, that flip of the coin, the, the double-edged sword, uh, that where the problems are still there and getting worse, or at least as I'm seeing it, the, um, we're seeing that reflected in, in politics and the extremism in, in politics. There, there doesn't seem to be a middle ground anymore. You know, and, and that's reflected in how issues are, are, are being dealt with, whether, you know, the, the Black Lives Matter, the, the extreme opinions on, uh, that has exacerbated. Uh, and now it's happening with, with the Asian community as well. There's been such a polarization that we really need, um, something to bring us together, uh, a platform that'll allow us some sort of discourse. I think theater and, and, and the arts is a tool to be able to do that, um, that will allow us to see these kinds of issues in a new light, to be able to show both perspectives so that people can understand both sides. And I think that the younger generation have, um, have, a, have a means now. They've, they've, there have been a couple of generations, decades of these various tools that are out there, different theater disciplines, different art forms, and the technology uh, that allows the expansion of these different kind of art forms and the birth of new art forms that they can utilize. 
and try to address some of these problems, try to address the extreme issues, to try to bring people together. Um, but it's, it's, um, it's a tremendous challenge because people seem to be locked into their ideologies. Um, and I don't know where, how those ideologies were formed. That's, that's beyond me. Um, I just know that they're there, that they're, um, within the system. Um, and, and that using theater and arts as a tool can mediate these different bodies to deal with one another. So I, I, I think that, uh, in the 35 years or so of, of working with theater, the oppressed in different kinds of, of, um, uh, theater as, as tools for social change. Um, I've seen the effectiveness of it. It's efficacious. It's, um, it's consistent. It's dangerous because what it does do is not only strip away the, the, the obvious, um, layers of discrimination and oppression within society, but it reflects back into we as a process what are our layers of bias that we bring into the work as well. So it, it constantly challenges us and I'm, and I'm delighted that there are generations coming up who are going to be using this work and expanding it and adapting it to, to face the challenges that they're going to be facing long after I'm gone and hopefully to use, continue using these, these tools, continue using theater and the digital arts and mainstream theater and, and, song and dance and whatever it takes to make a better world for themselves, for us. Thanks for watching. I hope you enjoyed the content. Make sure to reach out to us with your comments and feedback.